can I just say, I think Tension in Warsaw. That sounds like a really sick band name. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you think? Okay. Welcome back to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy. And with me, of course, is Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing this week? Hello. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, as always. <laughs> These elections keep on coming, so that's good for us. These elections aren't the only thing that are keeping on coming at the moment. Would you believe that this is our 20th episode? No, I don't believe it, actually. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, yeah, it's gone super fast, but it's obviously uh, yeah, amazing. Who would have thought? A year ago. No. And it and it does mean that some nerds out there have listened to us nerds for about twelve hours in total now. Twelve hours. Uh, yeah, that's hard for me to accept to be Come to on be guys. <laughs> Clearly both we and our audience need to get out more. <laughs> you can go out go out in nature and listen to your Plex podcast. <laughs> that's my tip. In this episode, we have got a lot of exciting stuff to talk about, including a chat with Financial Times Milan correspondent Silvia Borelli, who's going to be discussing with us the results from the Italian regional elections and the constitutional referendum. Also, we're going to be joined by another one of our Russia team members who's going to be filling us in on all the results from the gubernatorial and regional elections last week. That's going to be Cyril Amorsky joining us later. But first, we're going to take a quick look around Europe. First up, I want to bring you news of the State of the Union from President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. Von der Leyen, who's a member of the centre-right European People's Party, she gave her first State of the Union address this week. Uh, She used the speech to announce large commitments on issues from fighting climate change to a European health union and even the dreaded B-word, Brexit. In the speech, she attacked British Prime Minister Boris Johnson for introducing legislation in the UK National Parliament to renege on promises made in the Brexit withdrawal agreement the UK signed with the European Union earlier this year. And she actually did so by quoting former Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. She also focused on member states more reluctant to introduce tough climate regulation in their countries as part of the EU's targets to reduce carbon emissions across the Union. If you're left wondering, by the way, who the first woman to give the State of the Union speech is, why not swipe back over to our episode last month where we did a who's who of Europe's most powerful woman? Do it. Uh, and now I'm going to touch on the UCOP summit. So a planned summit of the European Council, the EU's most powerful body made up of uh, national leaders of all the member states, has had its planned meeting postponed after a member of the EU Council President, Charles Michel's staff, was diagnosed with coronavirus. So the former Belgian Prime Minister um, is having to self-isolate at the moment. Uh, the meeting has been postponed to early October, when member states will finally have a chance to vote on potential sanctions against Belarus and Turkey. Um, other issues that will be included on the agenda are EU relations with China uh, and the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. So yeah, a lot of a lot of things to cover there for them next month. In other news, we're now going to go to Poland, where the ruling National Conservative Law and Justice Party, known as Peace, has been abandoned by their ruling coalition partners after a few days of tension in Warsaw. A chance of early parliamentary elections has been raised as Peace is left as a minority government by the departure of United Rights Coalition members, United Poland. 
United Poland's leader, Zbigniew Zuboro, objected strongly to a new animal welfare bill, as well as to legislation that would give immunity to government officials in regards to violations of COVID-related measures. Peace has accused United Poland of attempting to be the tail wagging the dog, a comment which has now left the Polish government without a tail. Can I just say, I think tension in Warsaw, that sounds like a really sick band name. <laughs> Don't you think? Okay. Um, so from Poland, we now go to France, where six of its 577 constituencies held first rounds of by-elections on the 20th of September, following the resignation of the members for each constituency. Uh, two of the seats were held by the centre-left Socialist Party, two by the centre-right Republican Party, one by the Liberal and Governing Party En Marche, and one by the Réunion Communist Party. All six races saw disastrously low turnout, with the highest in the first district of Oran at a lofty 20.3%. All races will move on to a second round on the 27th, since no candidate met the required vote threshold due to low turnout. The incumbent party made it into the final round in five of the six districts, with Emmanuel Macron's En Marche failing to stay in the top two spots in Yvelines 11th district, where the incumbent party candidate only gained 15% of the vote behind the candidate from the Republican Party and the center-left Génération, which is the party of former presidential candidate Benoit Hamon. Uh, we at Europe Elects will, of course, be covering the second round of uh, these by-elections, uh, no matter the turnout. So, yeah, rest assured. Elections were also held in Italy, and later on in this podcast, we'll be talking a lot more about the regional elections there and the national referendum, which took place simultaneously. Listen on to the end of the episode, where I'm going to be talking to Silvia Varelli to help us unpack them and what they're going to mean for the future of Italian politics. So about two weeks ago, millions of Russians across numerous of the giant nations, oblasts, uh, went to the polls to elect, or should I say mostly re-elect, their governors, uh, regional and municipal councillors. There were also a few by-elections uh, to the National Parliament or the Duma. Um, first of all, I can say if you're unaware that this has even happened, it might be worth re-listening uh, to our previous episode where I spoke to our very own team member who's covered these elections and the Financial Times Bureau Chief about their views on, on these events and what their outcome might mean uh, for Russian politics overall. Uh, but now, um, with the privilege of hindsight and actual results to digest, um, we have invited another one of our um, correspondents who've helped cover the elections and who's now uh, part of the Europelex team. Uh, so it's Cyril uh, Amurski. He's a French-Russian political science student at Bless Paul University in Lille, which is also where he's dialing in from. Hi, Cyril. Hi, Gabriel. Welcome to the podcast. So I guess to start off, um, what electoral result um, struck you as the most interesting and noteworthy that you think our listeners should should know about if they haven't heard about it already? So I think that the most interesting results actually were in municipalities uh, and municipalities where the opposition won some seats. So we can talk about the city of Tomsk, where the candidate from Navalny's team won the election uh, in her uh, district. And the, the, her, her second representative was also elected in another district. Uh, so that was a big win for the Navalny's team there because it is it's also the city where Navalny got poisoned uh, a few weeks before the election. And then uh, another interesting result, I would say, is the one in Novosibirsk, 
uh, where four candidates from Navalny team also got elected and they were promoted as Navalny's team candidates. So even though Navalny's party was unable to run under uh, the banner of uh, the, the Russia of future party, uh, they managed to get elected as independents. Interesting. So how, how significant were those gains in terms of figures? How much support did they get in order to get these seats? And do you think that actually reflects um, the popular support for them? So if we talk, for example, about Novosibirsk, uh, where the, the leader of uh, the local uh, team of Navalny is Sergei Boyko, he won the election by a small margin. And in the beginning, uh, when the very first results were announced, uh, he was losing. He was losing, and I want to mention that the only reason why they accepted him as a candidate in this district is because he ran against uh, the candidate of the Communist Party that was also supported by the ruling uh, United Russia Party, so Putin's party, basically, and he managed to win the election uh, even though the candidate in front of him was quite strong and he held his seat since 1996. Uh, but if we talk about other cities, like, for example, Tomsk, uh, Tomsk is an interesting city because it has always voted for, let's say, pro-democracy liberal parties in Russia. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the 90s and the 2000s, it was one of the core cities to vote for the liberal Yabloko party, the, the Apple. And in these elections, we saw that uh, some opposition candidates got really uh, big margins, other system candidates. So, yeah, what you just described is that there were some wins for the opposition um, at the municipal and regional level. Um, however, on the gubernatorial level, which there were also a, a bunch of um, elections to elect governors um, across the country, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there will be no changes following these elections. So how, how come um, and how much of that is... Uh, you know, some sort of public acceptance of these incumbents and how much is a result of a faulty um, democratic system? So you are correct. Uh, all of the governors or all the acting governors got re-elected or simply elected. Uh, and I didn't mention any gubernatorial election, in fact, uh, in terms of interesting elections, because I wouldn't say they were interesting. Uh, in Russia, it is a tradition that governors uh, stay at their place. So we did see, in fact, like, for example, five years ago, two uh, kind of opposition candidates won the elections in the second round. But this year, this didn't happen. Uh, what happened is that uh, all, of the, all of the acting governors, in fact, won their, their re-election. All of them are either supported by the United Russia Party or are members of the United Russia Party, except for one governor that is from the uh, a fair Russia party, but he's widely considered as a pro-Putin candidate that was uh, that was appointed by Putin uh, a few years ago. Uh, so I would say that this is not necessarily a public acceptance. I would say that really depends on the on the on the on the regions, uh, because if we talk about, for example, some regions like Kamchatka, um, the governor got re-elected with 80% of of um, of the vote which is a lot, of course, something that we don't see uh, that often, I would say, in, uh, in uh, the EU. But the thing is that in Kamchatka, almost no, uh, like, no um, independent observers were allowed 
to, to participate in the elections, to observe the elections. Uh, and that was pretty much the case as well in the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, uh, where there was a huge increase in turnout, uh, where the turnout was increased by almost 50 points, which is almost 200% compared to the yeah. last election. And uh, the governor was re-elected with almost 80% of the vote, if I'm correct. Uh, and in this region as well, uh, independent observers were not allowed to participate. So, obviously we know that Russia um, is labeled as an authoritarian state and that these things um, do occur. But how, what, how wide is the scale of this, this type of cheating, would you say? Um, and of what kind is it? So if what what are they doing to achieve this, um, except so, for keeping the observers out? It is an interesting question because, for example, if you take a look at the Krasnodar Krai, uh, Krai is a type of region in Russia, uh, you would see that in the city itself, Krasnodar, uh, there were only a few cases of irregularities. And you would see that, for example, the turnout in the city was less than 30% or around 30% of the role. Well, in the rest of the region, you would see turnouts that are higher than 70% or turnouts that are, are around 70%. And if we talk about it from a sociological point of view, it makes no sense. Uh, not a single political scientist would be able to explain that big, that, that big of a difference in terms of turnouts uh, between uh, the capital and the rest of the cities. Um, but uh, th this is something interesting. And yeah, I mean, we saw... Uh, ballot stuffing, uh, we saw safety bags, so safety bags are the bags with uh, all the votes that were opened mystically, and then there was another thing that was kind of new for Russia, uh, which was the three-day uh, election process. So the, the main day was on the 13th of September, but the elections actually began two days before, prior to that day, so on the 11th. And uh, the, the main reason for that, the official reason for that was uh, the coronavirus. However, it is widely believed by at least the position candidates and uh, by all the political scientists that it was created to, um, to as we say in Russia, to draw, draw a turnout, something, uh, a turnout that does not represent the reality, just like it was the case in the Jewish autonomous oblast, where in the first two days of uh, elections, the turnout was at 55%, uh, a record high for any, any region in Russia. So finally, we're obviously always interested in new parties or new movements um, and sort of the reason for them emerging and having an initial success. Were there any sort of surprising new parties that on a regional level that are worth discussing or highlighting or even anything a bit um, kooky? Uh, something that might be interesting to, to note is that um, it was like the, the whole ele election was to a certain degree a referendum on uh, United Russia's approval, so the, the government party. And we saw that in some regions, uh, their score dropped drastically. Uh, so for example, if we talk about the Republic of Komi, uh, they had 58% in the last elections. Now they dropped to 28.5. So that's a decrease of almost of more than 30 points. So that's a huge decrease. And overall around the country, they suffered a 12, almost a 12% decrease in uh, the country overall. 
So the question is, where did all of the, their votes go? And usually, the Communist Party would benefit from it, uh, mm -hmm. especially in the past five, six years. However, this year, it was not the case. And overall, the Communist Party gained only one more point uh, compared to the last 2015 elections. And we saw, in fact, that new parties um, were created, like, for example, the New People Party, which is believed by some political scientists as, uh, as being um, uh, a Kremlin project. So in all of the regions in which, in which uh, they uh, participated, in all the elections they participated, they uh, got some representation, uh, except for one region, uh, Krasnodar. And if we talk about other parties, there is also the uh, Russians, Russian uh, Pensioner Party for Social Justice, um, which also participated in seven different elections, and they earned representation in all of the elections in which they participated. And uh, there is also the Green Alternative Party that participated in the Chilabinsk uh, region election and also uh, participated in the Kami Republic. In the Kami Republic, they got 10%. It is a new party. And in Chilabinsk, a little bit over 5%. And finally, the last party that um, got received representation and that uh, was created only this year, I believe, is the Four Truth Party uh, of uh, Prilepin that got representation in Ryazan uh, after they obtained 7% of the votes. So interestingly, despite all the, all the meddling and you know, the continued sort of dominance of United Russia across, across the, the country, you still had these new uh, movements pop up. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens uh, to them over the next five years. So finally then, um, what, uh, what's United Russia's sort of take of all this? Um, it sounds like a mixed bag. Uh, you know, um, what Medvedev said, so the ex-Prime Minister of Russia and today President of United Russia Party, he claimed that it was a victory for his party. And it is true. Uh, I would say it is a victory because they managed to keep all of their gubernatorial seats um, since everyone was elected on the first round. And I would say that in most regional councils, United Russia kept its majority or at least, or at least its plurality. But it is also a victory for the opposition in a certain way because it is a victory for Navalny because he was able to get some of his team members elected under the name of Navalny team members which is the first, and it's the first time that it happens for, for someone from his team. So that is great. Um, and I would say that it's also a victory for the opposition because in some regional councils, uh, a lot of seats were won this time by the opposition and not, or at least the systemic opposition and not by the United Russia. So it is a victory, but it's a flawed victory for United Russia. Definitely, we should always be clear about the caveat, obviously, that, you know, these aren't um, fully democratic elections, as we've outlined. Uh, but thank you so much, Cyril, for, um, for coming on and uh, digesting what was a very, you know, complex <laughs> electoral night. Um, thank you for covering it for us, and um, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Goodbye.
EuropeLX is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors. And everything we do, including this podcast you're listening to right now, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do so much more and cover so many more elections. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and more on our Patreon channel. And you can access all of that for as little as one euro a month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. In this week's return, much-awaited return, may I hasten to add, of our new segment on the flip side, we're heading to Nordic Europe to compare two opposite parties that you may or may not have heard of. To start off, we're going to look at Veganapartiet. Veganapartiet is the youngest party in Denmark, becoming eligible to compete in elections just this week. With 500 paying members and over 20,000 supporter signatures, the party is new to the Danish political scene, advocating for, you guessed it, veganism. The party's platform is for society to move totally to a plant-based diet and lifestyle, which they claim will be better for, and I quote here, humans and non-humans alike, with the end goal of the party being what they call total animal liberation. Beyond explicit veganism, the party supports traditional green and eco-centered policies, as well as typical animal right policies, such as an end to animal testing of cosmetics and medications, and the closing of zoos, aquariums, and an end to animal-based sports. The party has set a long-term target of winning seats in the Danish parliament in 2023, with the party seeing the signatures they've gained so far as a stepping stone to the 70,000 votes they're going to need to enter parliament. And now, on the flip side to Vegana Party, we have Socialdemokrati, the oldest active party in Denmark, founded in 1871. Um, it contested its first election in 1884 and won 3.9% of the vote, achieving just two seats in the parliament at the time. Uh, the SND-affiliated party entered government for the first time in 1924 under leader Torvald Stauning, who still holds the record for being successfully re-elected three times during his 15 years in power. The party has been either first or second in every Danish election since 1906, with the exception of the elections of 1915. So strong record. Um, Socialdemokratie was founded to represent a new social group of urban workers united by their class, as was the case with many centre-left parties of the era across Europe that lay the basis for a lot of what's the SND group in the European Parliament today. The party brought the world's first female government minister when Nina Bang was appointed Minister of Education in 1924, just nine years after women's suffrage was achieved in the country. Um, it also put forward Denmark's first female PM in 2011 when Helle Thorning-Schmidt became Prime Minister. Mette Frederiksen is the current leader of the party, as well as the Prime Minister of Denmark, serving since the party returned to government after the 2019 election. The party today is a social democratic and centre-left party and a member of the SD group in the European Parliament. A final honourable mention must go to two additionally old parties in Denmark who didn't quite make it onto the flip side this time around. So that's the centre-right Venstre. That was founded in 1910 uh, as a merger of two parties originally founded in 1870 and center-right the Conservative Folkeparti, which was founded in 1916 as a merger of various parties, including one, Höyre, which was founded in 1881 and is arguably a continuation of a party with the same name founded in 1848. So they could have a claim to have been chosen for the segment, but they didn't comply with our rules, Ewan. Listener, let me tell you, there was some discourse 
in the planning group chat this week trying to decide who was the oldest party in Denmark. Let me tell you. The only thing I can add, Gabriel, is that Thorvald Stauning has a mountain range named after him in Greenland. Oh, wow. Not many leaders who can have that claim to fame, right? No. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> Good for him, I guess. Um, I don't know how the people of Greenland feel if they... <laughs> that's, a, that's, that. a, that's a matter for another episode, Gabriel. <laughs> Hi everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us from. Uh, and of course, tell people about us. That would mean the world to us. Um, also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts on topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi to us, do shoot us an email. We're at podcast at I'm joined on the line now by a former Politico journalist now working as the Financial Times' Milan correspondent, Sylvia Borelli. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvia. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well, thank you. So just for our listeners' context, we're recording the day after the elections on the 22nd of September today. Um, so if you're listening to this in the far and distant future, all information is correct at our time, but obviously news is, is subject to change. Um, so let's just start with some uh, basic understanding for those of our listeners who uh, don't perhaps follow Italian politics as closely as you or I. There's been a national referendum this week on reducing the number of MPs in the parliament from 945 to 600. This was passed by a significant margin this weekend of around 70 to 30. So Sylvia, can you give us some insight? Why do Italians want fewer MPs per capita than almost any country in the Western world? Well, I think um, it's important to underline that this is a reform that was passed by Parliament last year. So lawmakers essentially voted by a very wide majority to, to cut their own jobs. Um, so I think there was a very wide perception amongst the public that um, essentially almost a third of them were useless because the minute you have lawmakers voting to cut their own seats, um, the public is obviously brought to thinking, well, um, if they decide that it's a good way for um, the state to save money and the money they're saving is on their own salaries, maybe they're not as uh, necessary as we thought or as the constitution, which was passed right after the Second World War, um, indicated them to be. And also, um, there has been a very active campaign, especially from uh, the population five stars suggesting that um, it would be a way to save on money because um, MPs in Italy are um, highly paid and um, this would be a way to save 500 million euro every legislature, so every five years. And this is an argument that resonates pretty well um, in Italy because there is a general sense that we have lots of lawmakers that aren't really working as hard as they should be and aren't solving um, the population's problems. Um, and finally, uh, I think it is also important that uh, the Democratic Party, which had been opposed to the reform when it was um, passed by Parliament last year, um, 
basically U-turned to say that they were in favor of um, cutting the number of seats. U-turned on this convincing center-left pro-EU uh, progressive voters that it was a good thing because you save money. Yeah, I just wanted to tap into that for a moment, that the center-left uh, Partido Democratico moved to, to go for in favor of these reforms, uh, despite being against them uh, previously, as you said. Was there anything behind that other than naked political opportunism, if I'm going to be cynical about it? I think there was an understanding on their part that the wide majority of Italians would have supported this reform and that going against it would have um, brought voters to perceive them yet again as an establishment party that is very much removed from the needs and the issues that are bothering people um, on a national level. But then, of course, you also have to consider that this was part of uh, the negotiation last year to enter into government with the five stars who are um, who have turned this issue and um, this referendum into a um, flagship battle of theirs. And so obviously there was also an issue of uh, political stability. Why then do PD members lag behind the the leadership so much so um some polling out in the exit polls that came out uh, as the results were coming in showed that just 45 percent of pd voters actually backed the um the changes in the referendum compared with of most other parties that being above 80 percent of their voters you know what what is pd missing in the sort of uh leadership that its membership is seeing instead i think that's a very good question and my understanding of it is that at the end of the day, the bulk of PD voters right now are um, middle class, uh, well-educated people. And so obviously these voters who are highly educated, uh, professionals or academics, uh, pro-European progressives don't really see um, the problem of saving 500 million euro every five years um, as um, the biggest issue that concerns them. So I think there is an element of the PD leadership not exactly knowing who their voters are because the traditional PD voters have widely shifted to uh, the far right league and um, to the populist five stars to a certain extent. But I think part of uh, those voters are going back to the PD. So right now, I think um, it is a party that is going through some sort of identity crisis. And I think these regional elections and the result of this referendum will give them a bit of respite to uh, reflect on who they are and who they want to be and what stances they want to um, really fight for. But right now, I think uh, the main issue, which I think also explains the fact that many of their voters did not back um, at the referendum, is that PD voters aren't the voters that the center-left and the left traditionally had in Italy. This uh, divide that you're referring to between the sort of middle class um, and sort of the PD's former voters is, is really interesting. Um, another big divide in this election was, and as in many issues in Italian politics, is the sort of north-south divide um, that Italy has experienced for a long time. Um, and this election was no different, and we're seeing actually uh, levels of support for reducing the number of MPs uh, in the parliament was much higher the further south in Italy you went. 
Can you just help us understand, for those of us who aren't Italian, why there is such a big difference in uh, public opinion between Northern Italians and Southern Italians? The southern part of the country is the weakest economically. It's the part of the country that has highest youth unemployment um, in the whole of Europe, actually, not just Italy. Um, and it's the part of Italy that is currently um, facing the most severe economic hit um, linked to the COVID crisis and to the extended closures also because uh, their economy is heavily reliant on tourism. And so obviously there's a series of problems that are worsened by the pandemic, but that are very old, uh, that have led the people of Southern Italy to sort of shift either to far right parties or to populist parties. This is um, one of the main themes that has also allowed uh, Matteo Salvini's far-right league to inc increase in popularity down south, because originally that was a party um, that was founded up north and that rallied for the um, separation of northern Italy from uh, the south. Northern Italy is a lot more industrialized. People um, are higher earners. Uh, there's less unemployment, and you have lots of young southerners who migrate up north. I think the economic divide and the fact that down south people aren't as well off as people up north um, is something that really resonates in the way people vote and populist parties have really tackled those issues more than traditional center-left and center-right parties have in the past few decades. It's really interesting that this referendum can be seen as a sort of uh, touch play as a as a as a guide a bellwether for the wider issues in Italian politics over the last five or ten years. Now, just to finish off, I just want to talk really briefly about the seven regional elections which have taken place uh, alongside the referendum simultaneously. Um, before the elections, for our listeners, four of the regional parliaments um, that were up for re-election were controlled by a centre-left coalition, two by the right coalition, and one by a regionalist government. Now. Following the elections, it, it looks like it, sw it switched to 3-3 to um, between the, the centre-right and the centre-left coalitions, um, with uh, the region of Marquet flipping from the left to the right. All of the victories were quite narrow um, in terms of parliamentary elections. Some of the presidential elections had bigger margins. Um, and this is obviously a, a, a good look for, for the right um, of Italy, but a sad day for the left. Is there anyone who's sort of really enthusiastically celebrating the results that happened over the weekend? To be fair, I think the Democratic Party is because um, not many people were expecting a three to three result. Um, the expectation or the fear more like it was that um, Tuscany, for example, which is traditionally a left-wing bastion, would have been lost to the far right because the candidate was a league candidate. So it would have been the first time in the history of Tuscany that it would have shifted to the right and it would have had massive consequences on the stability of the government and also within the Democratic Party on the leadership. So actually, I think the results of the election shows how populist parties, on the other hand, although they have won on the referendum for all the reasons we discussed, are losing traction because the pandemic and the economic crisis the country is facing and will face in the years to come has shown that 
simplistic answers to very complicated problems don't solve anyone's issues. And in a situation like this, with all the funds that will come in from the EU through the recovery fund, you really need a leadership and you really need a government with a strategy and with a vision instead of people just throwing around slogans. And in fact, Matteo Salvini's league has performed um, a lot worse than expectations, but also the five stars who in every region except for Liguria, the five stars and the Democratic Party ran independently, not in a coalition. Everywhere they, um, the, the PD outperformed the five stars and the five stars from the 30 to 35 percent they had in the elections in 2008 plummeted to below um, single digits. So it's really interesting to see how this wave of populism and people voting against the establishment and against pro-EU parties is to a certain extent coming to an end. And while far-right parties are still very popular as um, the, the election in the Marche region where the candidate is from the far-right Fratelli d'Italia um, shows because Marche was um, a center-left region for 25 years and this is the first time the center-left loses it to the far-right. So that is obviously an indication that there are still parts of the country that um, support the far right, but in particular, Matteo Salvini's popularity, which was affirmed with the European elections of uh, 2019, and the five stars popularity, which obviously we know um, was affirmed in the general election in 2018 when they won over 33% of the vote, is coming to an end. So it means there is something shifting within uh, Italy and in Italian politics that in a certain way gives more strength to the current governing coalition and also um, to the Democratic Party. Thank you very much. That's a really interesting insight into how uh, these elections are going to have consequences on the national level. This has been uh, fantastic to talk to you, Silvia Borelli uh, from the Financial Times. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampalas, and the producer and audio engineers were Rafael Penurios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, which is Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, and Guillem Pereira Resende. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything was only possible because of our patrons on Patreon. And I go mute.